Yes. Salt Lake Community College's Distinguished Faculty Lecture is an overlapping process. This year's winner was selected last year, and next year's winner has been selected by the Faculty Senate's Faculty Development and Research Committee. I am pleased to announce to you today that Christy Green will be the, the 2024 Distinguished Faculty Lecturer. Christy Green's presentation is titled, The Counter Stories of Latinas Working at Community Colleges. Count okay. Counter storytelling. No, okay, no, just, just kidding. Counter storytelling, which was developed within critical race theory. No, I'm just kidding is a method of recounting the experiences of those who are racially and socially marginalized. Christy Green is an associate professor of, and department coordinator for the Gail Miller School of Business, teaching courses in business communication, management, and business foundations since 2015. She has a bachelor's of science in architecture, a master's of business administration, and expects to earn her doctorate in higher education administration by the end of this semester. She has taught for BYU-Idaho and has been an associate dean of faculty at Independence University. Christy is an entrepreneur, and while she loves the thrill of setting up a new company, her passion is in higher education. She has two daughters, Madeline and Sophia, who love hanging out at the lakes and doing anything creative. So please join me in congratulating our next distinguished fa faculty lecturer for 2024, Professor Christy Green. And now, you know, I, I, would like, I would like to turn the time over to President Huftelin who will explain a bit about the Distinguished Faculty Lecture and introduce this year's presenter. Thank you, Clifton. Congratulations, Christy. I look forward to hearing from you next year. That's great. So let me just share a little bit about the history and the kind of rationale behind this event. Um, I think it's important to kind of um, always share the traditions and the reason behind the things that we do at a community college. So, as you know, we are a college committed to be a model for transformative and inclusive education. So it goes without saying that high quality faculty would be a, a most essential ingredient in that mission. Students come to SLCC with educational goals and intellectual curiosities, some that need igniting and some that just need a little fuel, right? Our process is around faculty hiring, rank advancement, awarding tenure, and providing professional growth to innovate within the classroom are all hallmarks of high impact practices and the expectations that we have of faculty. The Distinguished Faculty Lecture Program was established in 1994 as an example of this expected rigor. Let's give a round of applause to past distinguished faculty lecturers who are in the audience today. Can I ask you to stand or wave if you can, please? Woo! There's quite a few, and I, are those archived anywhere? Is John Glenn here? Yes? Excellent. So we have, if you didn't hear David Hubert, we have a list of all of the winners over the years and then in some, many cases, uh, archived recordings of their lecture. So if you're interested, check that out. The Distinguished Faculty Lecture Program seeks to identify faculty who are engaged in important, exciting work and invite them to share that work with colleagues and the larger community. So thank you all for being here today for Anne. The award recipient develops a project that culminates in this annual public lecture. Today, we have the great delight to be able to hear from Dr. Ann Canavan, who will be presenting the 2023 Distinguished Faculty Lecture titled, Isn't It Supposed to Be This Hard? Mental Health, Academia, and Balance. 
Dr. Canavan is an associate professor and department coordinator in English, linguistics, and writing studies, teaches courses in composition, literature, ESL, technical writing, and linguistics. She received her PhD in English from Northern Illinois University and joined our faculty in 2015, having previously taught in Tennessee, Illinois, and Kansas. Anne has published articles and book chapters on topics ranging from narratology to assessment to writing center pedagogy. She currently serves as the president for the regional two-year college association of the National College Council of Teachers of English. While teaching is her first love, she is act actively involved in mentoring new faculty at SLCC and helping them shape the institution as it moves forward. And it gives me great pleasure to present you with the Distinguished Faculty Lecture Medal. Come on up. And as Salt Lake Community College, let me just read this. Salt Lake Community College, upon recommendation of the faculty, is honored to award Associate Professor Dr. Ann Canavan the 2023 Distinguished Faculty Lecture Award. One more round of applause for Dr. Canavan. Congratulations. Thank you so yes, much. Yes, you are welcome. All right, so I got the bling. I'm headed out. <laughs> um, yeah, this is heavy, the head that wears the crown and all that Shakespearean nonsense. <laughs> so I'm really happy to see so many of you here. And I'm glad you are here for what I shall affectionately refer to as Free Food Thursday. So, <laughs> but I guess you want me to actually do something since I'm up here. So I want to welcome you to a project that's been a year in the making but it started probably a bit before then but before we dive in I want to offer our land acknowledgement that we are currently occupying the traditional territories of the Goshute, Navajo, Paiute, Shoshone, and Ute people and land acknowledgements are awesome they make us feel good but if they are not accompanied by knowledge and action they don't mean anything so Utah has a list of cultural sites that you can visit to get more knowledge about the people who are traditionally connected to this land. And our state website has a more in-depth um, in discussion of the traditional tribes of Utah. Also, when we're talking about bringing things into our pedagogy and our practice, these are certainly not the only books, but they're a good start. So. Also, as has been said over and over again, this doesn't happen alone. So I want to thank a number of people, um, President Huftelin, Provost Sanders, Dean Land, and my chair, Professor Jury Harwell, for supporting me, encouraging me, and helping to sustain this awesome lecture series. Also, David Hubert, Lori Rosequist, who has moved on to a new position, and Amanda Mydell will be super excited not to get emails from me anymore for a while, because I had a lot of them. <laughs> My home department, ELWS, the Center for Health and Counseling, Employee Wellness, and the Center of Authentic Leadership and Mindfulness were also instrumental in providing localized information for this talk. And I couldn't do it without my people. So I am so honored and happy to see so many of you here from current and former students to my, my people. And you, you encourage me in my good and my bad decisions. <laughs> so, and, uh, and my family, my mother was having Zoom problems, but she swears she'll watch the recording. <laughs> I feel like I'm missing somebody. Ah, yeah, that guy. <laughs> so my husband, Chris Blankenship, is always my amazing support. And I wouldn't be up here talking about mental health if he hadn't helped me through a lot of different things along the way. I can't do anything without him, and I'm never going to have to. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
I do want to mention that this talk is going to talk about mental health in crisis. And so if at any point you are uncomfortable or you need to leave the room, please feel free to behave in a way that allows you dignity. And if you or anyone you know is in crisis, you are loved and needed. There are people who cannot be without you. So remember these resources. This will all be posted on my webpage. And commit 988 to memory just like you have 911 because it can quite literally save somebody's life. And that will be on the bottom of every slide in this talk. So, all right. So, how many people here have imposter syndrome? <laughs> I thought that might be the answer. Part of the reason we have imposter syndrome is because we see the brilliant polished work of our brilliant polished colleagues. And we don't know all the backstory and the blood and the sweat and the swearing that went into it. I didn't want to do this presentation like that. So I've made a podcast. It's currently up to 11 episodes as of yesterday. And the last episode, or probably the penultimate one, will be a recording of this talk. And I've had some mental health crises during this project. I've had some really bad days. And it's in there. And all the good days. And the days I tried to get ChatGPT to write my lecture for me, and it wouldn't do it. <laughs> also, for the funsies, this is my Spotify playlist. This is what was playing repeat in the background while I was working on this. If you don't know Frank Turner and Bowling for Soup, you're gonna. So. <laughs> so this project was always premised on an idea of disclosure. And the people who have been doing the most conceptualization of what disclosure means are the people working in disability studies. And disclosure has been said over and over again to lower stigma, to normalize help-seeking behavior, all the things we want to do. Disclosure is awesome. Disclosure does a lot of good things. It helps you create a community. It helps you explore insights into different aspects of disability and identity. And if you need accommodations, you're going to have to disclose. That being said, disclosure is not always safe for everyone. You need three things in order to disclose effectively. First is a state of personal acceptance. Second, you have to know that you're in an environment that is accepting of differences and is willing to help everyone reach their potential within that environment. And finally, you need to know there won't be repercussions for disclosure. Now, that being said, not everybody exists in that environment. And there are risks to self-disclosure. In academia, one of them is often tied to institutional status. People who are contingent labor in some way often do not have the security to disclose or to feel like they can seek accommodations. Some fields are a lot more hospitable to mental health diagnoses. English majors were all expected to be a little off, but <laughs> in the medical field, that may be a very different kind of a calculus. And to a lot of people, disability still signals disqualification, that you are somehow less than, not that you need to work in a different way to be effective, but that you are broken in some way. And the more people who can safely disclose, the more we can fight that narrative. And finally, when we have a national tragedy, one of the first things people want to talk about is whether the perpetrator had a mental illness. It's a convenient scapegoat, despite the fact that people with mental illness are many times more likely to be victims than people who commit violent crime. So we have to fight against these narratives that people who are experiencing mental health challenges are violent, that they're less confident, or maybe that they're just overreacting and it's all in their head. So that being said, why would anybody put themselves in that position? It does a lot of good things. 
one of the most common things you'll hear in mental illness literature is mental illness lies. It tells you that you're alone. It tells you that you're not enough. It tells you that your friends only hang out with you because you make amazing macaroni and cheese, which I do. <laughs> but you need, if you have a community, you can help combat those thoughts. And speaking of community, when we share our experiences, we decrease stigma. We make it more likely that people can talk and feel heard. And one of the communities that we all interact with here at Slick is our students. When we model healthy behaviors, when we have open conversations about mental health and we say, hey, what are you actually doing to maintain your mental health? Or we talk about, I'm having a depressed day, so we're going to change some things in the class to accommodate that that is going to perpetuate help-seeking behaviors. And again, I'm not being hyperbolic when I say that saves lives. So if we want to be better for our students, we need to be comfortable with disclosure if we can, if we're in a safe position to do so. So speaking of safe positions, if privilege were Pokemon, I've got them all, almost all of them. <laughs> And that's why I can stand in front of my entire workplace and say, I have a mental illness. Because I'm white, because I'm straight, I'm in a committed romantic relationship, I'm possibly overly educated, <laughs> I'm tenured, no take backs, <laughs> and I'm financially secure and I'm mostly able-bodied, although sometimes when I go upstairs in AAB, that's a little up for grabs. I also have major depressive disorder and anxiety. Like a lot of people, this began manifesting when I was about 19 or 20, and anxiety began to affect my daily life in about 2005. Now, I was very much of the rub some dirt on it school of thought. I was not seeking treatment. I thought that I was just stressed, or it was just the way my life was going right now, and it would magically be better. Well, then 2008 happened. When I was working on my PhD, I had a class of 10 students with me while we experienced a mass shooting. Five of our campus community lost their lives, as did the shooter. I was with my class for about three hours in a room with no windows and no cell service. So that was a fun experience for me and Chris. And then my best friend, the person I called my sister, um, died in August of 2008. All of this happened while Chris and I were planning a wedding three states away. 2008 was far too exciting. And as a result, in 2009, I began treatment for depression. So primarily medical, I've added therapy to it since then. Also, when they diagnose you for depression, they don't just say, you're sad, have some pills. They do blood work. Oh, so much blood work. And I was co-diagnosed with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which in lay terms means your thyroid or your immune system has looked at your thyroid and been like, I hate that guy. We should get rid of it. And even though a thyroid is a pretty little thing, it controls a lot of things, like your mood and your metabolism. So that is always a complicating factor in my mental health. Right now, I'm very well regulated. Medication and therapy, I have a couple down days a month. And down doesn't necessarily mean sitting in a dark corner crying. It means everything is harder. It's like walking through mud, really thick, smelly mud. And it's just everything takes 10 times the effort. That happens about once a month for a couple days, and I'll have longer episodes of a couple weeks every six months or so. Usually my signal will go get my thyroid checked, just in case it's falling down the job again. But this talk isn't really about what it feels like to have a mental illness or my experience, but if you have any questions or you want to talk to me about your experiences, anything like that, you can ask me anything at all. I am very open about my mental state. So, all right, 
that's who I am. One thing I do want to clarify, though, in the literature, you see a lot of discussion co-occurring about burnout. Burnout is not a mental health condition. It is also often, because I speak Singlish good, a comorbidity. Like, it will show up at the same time. But the thing about depression or burnout is that if you remove yourself from the situation that is causing it, it should go away. Mental illness doesn't work that way. I have had depressive episodes at Disney World, and there is nothing more cognitively dissonant than that. <laughs> so the other thing to note about mental illness is we often can't diagnose it until somebody's actively in crisis. So, pretend, um, so burnout is a major potential concern. It's an important topic, but it's not quite what we're going to be talking about here. Um, potential mental health conditions that you'll see discussed in the literature, uh, anxiety, depression, and bipolar show up the most, but there are a lot of other conditions that require attention and research, and how do we accommodate people experiencing these situations in their lives. So I mentioned the research a lot. When I started this program, uh, process, apparently I didn't understand the difference between distinguished faculty lecture and the dissertation. <sighs> I may have read about 80 different things, all of which are on my references page on education. So, and a lot of those 80 different things I read focus on student outcomes and the need for support. And this makes a lot of sense because typically mental illness manifests between the ages of 16 and 25. There are major life changes that students are experiencing. There are um, biological and physiological, that may be the same, sorry, Melissa, um, <laughs> conditions that are changing as well. And we are seeing this on our campuses. Uh, the um, American College Health Association's latest survey says about 30% of college women and 21% of college men are experiencing or being in treatment for mental health condition. These are just the people who seek treatment. This is not the people who would benefit from treatment. So the real numbers are probably a lot higher. And for the people who argue, oh, we're just overdiagnosing people, according to 1950s diagnostic criteria, we're actually underdiagnosing that people who might have been referred to treatment in the 50s are not currently today. So, and this is reflected in our administration and our faculty in terms of concerns. Um, a 2020 survey said the presence at two-year schools, their top two concerns were spring enrollment numbers followed very, very closely by the mental health of students. And that is for very good reason. In Utah, this crisis is even more present. We have declared mental health issues a public health crisis at UCI schools, and Utah commit, uh, <clears throat> had a survey done using a national tool. And so I compared the survey results for Utah to the national numbers. All the red numbers are higher than the national average. And before you get too proud about the suicide number, the national average was 2%. So that's some pretty scary data. And we want to be here for our students. We are the people that they're most likely to disclose to their faculty and their staff. And if we are not well, we cannot help them. So that's why I'm focusing on faculty and staff here, because the reason we're all here is for my awesome hench people who came to this talk. One of my classes decided that they were hench people and not minions because they had more autonomy. <laughs> so 
Because of this, provosts are also reporting concern. A 2023 survey said 49% of provosts thought that faculty and staff mental health was very important. However, a third of them also said that they um, were sure that their institution had plans in place to sustain that. So that's where we need to be focusing our efforts is what can we do as institutions and as individuals. So if you ever thought that everybody around you seems a little stressed and a little off, you were right. Pre-pandemic faculty reported higher levels of distress and impairment than professionals outside the academy. And we'll talk a little bit about why that might be. The other thing you see in this chart is a gap in the research. There was a lot of literature on students. There's a burgeoning amount of literature on faculty, and there is virtually nothing on staff and administration. And that's a gap we probably need to fill because you're seeing different pressures on that side of the house. And we need to talk about how we can help to support um, people in those roles. So why are we like this? Well, <laughs> I know that's a conversation we could have for a while. And some of the conversation that's being had is a little hurtful. <laughs> So there is an argument that this is simply a profession that attracts people who may be predetermined to have these crises. Like I said, little hurtful. <clears throat> um, we are described as a hyper intelligent or highly intelligent, hypersensitive. That doesn't sound like anyone I know. Uh, very empathetic, so we do tend to take on the worries and concerns of the people about us, and. And we're kind of competitive. So I'm kind of annoyed at my awesome friends who did great DFLs in the past and raised the bar up here. I'm like, no, I have to be as good as them. <clears throat> so, and because of our identity as academics, we are less likely to leave environments that are harming us because it's more than a job you do from nine to five. It is an identity. So we make choices that may not be in our best interest to continue that identity. And the other thing is, we also have identities as intellectuals. We expect our brain to be our greatest asset. And it's not great when it feels like it's turning on us when it is creating a reality that isn't consistent with what other people are seeing. And that's a really hard thing to admit to, is that my brain, the thing I depend on the most, isn't working in a way that is sustainable. But you'll be happy to know it's not just us. It's also our environment. <laughs> Um, one of the main exacerbating factors I've seen in the literature, especially post-pandemic, is we are constantly available. And I love this quote, because academics can work anytime and anywhere, we often feel we must work all the time and everywhere. I know nobody in this room has ever felt that way before. <laughs> so, and I think probably our students and our administration staff have some more experiences. Also, I don't know if you've heard, but national and state level funding for higher education is going down. Huh. However, our workload is not. So we have fewer people doing the same or more work. That is going to cause pressure. That is going to cause situations that are going to push people into crises. Um, we also deal with things like perfectionism, um, workplace bullying, competition, social isolation, all of these sorts of things. These are omnipresent factors, not just in academia, but we see them at a fairly high degree within our profession. And the good news keeps coming. If you are female or diverse in some way, you are more likely to be affected in part because the diverse members of our community that we work so hard to bring in are going to be doing a lot of invisible and emotional labor. They're the ones who are gonna be doing mentoring. 
They're the ones who are going to be listening to their colleagues who are having a hard time or being what one colleague and I affectionately refer to as the white people whisperer, if you are a person of color. <clears throat> so all of these things are important. They are emotionally draining and they often don't show up on your tenure and rank advancement. That's a lot of work that isn't being quantified and valued. So <clears throat> our partners who um, are diverse and marginalized typically experience mental health issues disproportionate to the general population. So yeah, so that's why we are where we are. And when we're experiencing these crises, You've heard me talk about my people. I'm gonna talk about them a lot more. We turn to our colleagues. So again, that's a lot of emotional labor that's being done by the people who care about us the most. So this is an important network. We need that network. We need to have people that we work with and that we are friends with and that we love who can support you and say, hey, I've seen you, you know, you don't seem to be doing quite as well. What can I do for you? Or, hey, you haven't answered a text message in a while. Are you okay? Those kinds of support networks are invaluable. However, when people are doing this support, they very often don't feel supported by their institution for maintaining these collegial networks, for doing things that will help create a community, that will help people to feel that they can reach out and to be seen. So we're gonna fix that. <laughs> uh, one thing I do want to mention before we go into that is under the ADA, Physical and mental disabilities are treated equally. So everybody in this room, everybody online, just everybody has access to ADA accommodations. And with the ADA comes two important protections. One, you do not have to disclose to anybody you don't want to. So once you talk to the Office of Disability Services, then you don't have to disclose to anyone else and you have a right to a job accommodation if it doesn't cause undue hardship. That's the legal language for your employer. We're all nodding because we all send our students there when they're having a hard time, right? We're like, hey, go get those accommodations so we'll let you succeed. And we're like, yeah, do that. A 2017 study of 267 faculty who disclosed they had mental health concerns 70% had no or limited familiarity with what accommodations were available. I'm not really concerned about the 87% because if you know they're there and you feel that they aren't right for you, excellent, more power to you. But the fact that we have so many people who don't even know what's available, that's problematic. So speaking of knowing what's available, we have a lot of things. From what I've seen in the literature, Slick is actually doing a really, really good job as far as we can. But we can do better and we're going to. So if you are full and part-time faculty and staff, you have accommodations through the ADA. You also have the Employee Assistance Program that offers counseling. They have a crisis line. I am told that sometimes the wait times on that are a bit long. So remember your 988 number because you want to have somebody who can talk to you if you're in crisis right away. The Center for Health and Counseling, who was kind enough to send Whitney here, offers um, <clears throat> visits for counseling at $30. That's about as much as our copay for some plans. So that's available to you. There's a lot of good connection between mind and body wellness. So massage therapy, yoga, all possibilities. We have a very robust employee wellness benefit, which has everything from like a one hour kind of a knowledge-based thing to a multi-month, one small change program. And if you're full-time, you can get financial compensation for doing that. 
up to $600 a year. So do not leave your $600 sitting on the table. We also are working as a college to increase our mental health literacy because that's one of the things that comes up over and over again in the research is if faculty are aware of the things that are available, they are more likely to utilize them. Sorry, my stopwatch keeps disappearing. And they are more likely to be able to help. So the Live On Suicide Prevention module, e-learning has just rolled out and it's a Canvas module. Takes a few hours, but it's very valuable. I'm about halfway through it. And we have a shorter QPR suicide prevention module. We also have the Center of Authentic Leadership and Mindfulness that does a lot to help faculty be more centered and does retreats and these kinds of outreach. Our insurance covers mental health visits the same way as we do physical. So don't feel like that is a barrier if you are a full-time faculty. Our sick leave applies equally to mental and physical events. So that is something to take advantage of when you can. And our employee wellness memo allows us three hours a week of fitness and activities. And you can use it for things like learning how to scuba dive, which is something Chris and I did last semester and I still haven't drowned. <laughs> so these are things we have available now. I do want to briefly talk about self-care because that's everybody's favorite word since the pandemic. Possibly two words, I haven't quite decided yet. And it has become a $1.5 trillion industry. Somewhere, somebody is gonna sell you a candle or a coloring book that will give you mental clarity, enlightenment, and just everything you could ever ask for. But if we look at what Audre Lorde says, that self-care is a political act. It is warfare because you are stepping outside of a heavily economically driven system to do something that produces no profit and no product. To do that, to take the time for yourself, to be with people, and that's one of the things that Lord emphasizes is building community as self-care. That that is radical self-care. It is not doing yoga, although that could be part of it. It's not buying the candle. It's doing things that substantially change the system around you. So. And we have to be careful of self-care narratives that become essentially victim blaming. Because sometimes when people are promoting self-care, they're saying, well, the reason you are sad or unhappy or whatever is because you didn't take care of yourself. It's not that I hit you, it's that you are hitting yourself. And that's not often the case. So we have to talk about how we can be well ourselves, but also how can we create wellness culture? And this is not a, okay, we've done enough activities, ding, you're a wellness culture. This is a goal that we are constantly building toward. So this is something we can't stop doing and achieving for. But at its core, a wellness culture is one where people believe that their place of work and their community wants them to be well. That their wellness is not simply a tool for better productivity. That's a really important thing because a lot of times when organizations talk about this, it's I want healthy employees because healthy employees do more work. We need to talk about things in a way that says I want healthy employees because healthy employees are good. And how can we help people to do this? So one of the big things that came up, and I know you're like, oh God, another committee, what is she doing? <laughs> so um, Price and Kirschbaum have a really good white paper on suggestions for maintaining and supporting faculty mental health on campus. And a lot of them come back to this, yes, it is a committee, I couldn't think of a nicer thing to call it, <clears throat> that, is made up of people 
who come from all of the stakeholders. So faculty, staff, and students, the Office of Disability Services, administrators, community members. So people from NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I may have some of my prepositions wrong, but that if you Google NAMI, you will go find it. All of these people coming together to talk because it needs to be a major discussion, not just once, not just, hey, we've done this, but we do need to do things like develop mission statements and policy that apply equally to all employees. I think we're in the process of that, but it could be more visible. Reinforcing campus commitment to mental health access, providing spaces for dialogue for people to share their experiences and be heard by people who can make change. And that when we are talking about whether or not our campus is well and effective, that mental health is a major part of that. We can meet all our benchmarks. We can do the most beautiful assessment in the world. Sorry, dear. But if mental health isn't a part of that, we're not talking about our entire community. So these were some best practices I gathered from the literature. Some of them we've started, some of them we can beef up and do a bit more sustainably. So we can publicize processes for requesting accommodations. When I was looking up for my own ed edification for this talk, how to request an accommodation, it took me about 15 minutes to find it on the website because our website is massive and we have a lot of information, a lot of different places. Some of it's outdated, some of it's not. So we need to make sure that we are putting this in a place where one search will get you exactly what you need to be successful. We also need to, and this is something I am very excited about. I'm not sure if Marianne McKnight is here, but we are starting the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, a mentoring program, which is really, really cool because one of the things that came out when this was uh, people were seeking volunteers is that this would be a significant service component for the people who were participating. So this comes back to what I was talking about earlier, making the work we do visible and valued. That's what it has to be. So we build these communities and we support the people who are building those communities. Also, we do our once a year campus climate survey, but more opportunities for people to submit anonymous feedback that say, here are the things I'm experiencing. Here's what's going well, because we are doing a lot of good things. And here are the things that aren't. And maybe here are some suggestions for change. So we need to have that communication open. And one of the things I've talked about that we're already working on is increasing mental health literacy for our faculty and staff. Suicide prevention is absolutely the place to start, but it's not the end all be all in mental health literacy. So how can we make our staff more comfortable when our colleagues and our students disclose to us that they're having a hard time? How can we give them those tools and how can we compensate them for getting that knowledge? Because that's the other thing. We don't need more unpaid service. So, oh, look at all the head nods. <laughs> Within our departments and our units, we can work on providing more universal design. Yes, that is partly having alt text on your pictures on Canvas, but it's also things like different modes of submitting work, depending on how the person is best accommodated, their communication preferences. I have been known in the days when I had a separate phone in my office to sit there and watch it ring and think mean thoughts about it because I hate talking on the phone. That is simply not how to get in touch with me. I tell my students, if you want to annoy me and not talk to me, call my office phone. So. Different people have different communication preferences, so how can we accommodate them? Workspaces, I know we're all kind of bunched up right now, but thinking about different options, things like that. 
We want to express our commitment to mental health diversity in our hiring practices. How can we make our hiring more transparent and more humane for the people who have, say for instance, major anxiety disorder? What could we do to them? Could we give them the questions in advance so that they know how to prepare? Could we change the way we're setting up the room so it's not kind of the circular firing squad kind of a model? <clears throat> so all these kinds of things. So what can we do to get more access? And a lot of this is involved talking to people who are willing to disclose, talk about what works for them, talk to our colleagues at other institutions and say, oh, wow, that's something I never thought of. And we want to make sure that the lines of communication are open and that it's not up to the faculty or to our students in our classrooms to maintain those lines. We need people to feel that they are valued and that their input is sought, even if they aren't able to make that first move. So how can we reach out to our students, to our faculty members, to our staff members, and say, I really care about what's going on. Do you have any suggestions? And I did mention that sometimes we have a little competitive problem. Well, sometimes we overwork ourselves to death because we see all of our brilliant colleagues and we are quite sure that they are doing absolutely everything that could possibly be done. And so we hold ourselves to standards that may not even exist or we see all that white space on our form one. Or we're like, well, if I don't fill all of it up, I'm a crap teacher, right? So if we're more transparent about what other people are doing and what it looks like to get associate professor or tenure, then people will have more realistic ideas and they can set these goals and boundaries that will help them to be healthier. All right, we're now in the irony portion of the conversation. <laughs> so these are things that I should be doing. <laughs> um, so the first one I'm good at, I have the best people. Like sincerely, my friend and family group, I will put them up against anyone else. It's not a competition, but they would totally take them out. <laughs> and now for the laughter. <laughs> yep, say no sometimes. This is not my gift. It probably never will be. It needs to be accompanied by setting realistic goals and limits. But if we normalize saying no occasionally, or you have a no committee. I have a colleague who, when somebody asks us to do something new, she talks to me first. And I'm like, can you really do that? And she's like, no. <laughs> but having somebody else to give you perspective and to say, whoa, 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 you are going to hurt yourself. It's like a personal trainer, right? Except you're still not thin. <laughs> Prioritize what matters most. I think for a lot of us, it's our students. I was telling a student the other day, they're like, oh, wow, you answered that email really quickly. And I'm like, no, you are the thing that matters most. Nothing else will burn down if I don't get to it. But students are the reason why we're here. And I know that's just as true for our staff and administration as it is for the faculty. But figure out if you have to let a ball drop, which one it probably should be. Now what works for you? And this can be environmental. I work better in a clean house. So I agonize if it's not clean. So Chris and I did the ultimate bougie thing and we have a housekeeper come twice a month. That's part of my mental health program is knowing that I don't have to do everything. Figure out when you're productive, figure out when you're feeling more balanced. What are the things that are contributing to this environment? Obviously, this is not a magic pill. So you can be doing everything right and still have down days. You can still have panic attacks or anxious episodes. But control what you can control and then deal with the rest of it when it happens. 
one practical thing I do, I have a couple flex days in my semester schedule. And that way, if my class or I need a mental health day, it's not all gonna pile up on us for the rest of the semester. This is part of the reason faculty don't take six days is because we're like, well, crap, then I'll just have the domino effect of death happen, right? So build in some cushions. When you've got a big scary thing, break it into smaller chunks, build in cushions there too. So if you don't get to your small chunk of that task that day, it's not gonna create a huge anxiety storm. And then when you're super productive, then you're ahead of the game and look, you have extra flex days. And finally, I look forward to this one. Celebrate victories when they come. It's good to be proud of yourself. It's good to acknowledge that you've done hard things, even if that hard thing was taking a shower. It's good to celebrate these things because we get so tied up in what we haven't done or what we can't do. So, I know a lot of you are familiar with Blue Sky Ideas. Administrators, cover your ears. This is what we do if time and resources and money were not an issue. And I know some of you are like, no, that's always an issue. This is a bad, bad road to go down. So what could we do here at Slick, institutionally, within our departments, personally, if we had the, the ability to dream big? I've talked to a few friends and colleagues, and here were some of the ideas we've kicked around, but y'all are smarter. You're gonna come up with even more things. One thing I've talked about that some people think is crazy, but I kind of love is a service sabbatical, where you don't do service for a semester or a year. You focus on your teaching. You focus on reading and professional development. It doesn't cost anything, but it frees you up to focus on what does matter. Flexible tenure clocks. If somebody takes seven or eight years to get to tenure, cool. It's not a race. Team teaching. We work with our colleagues. We get better ideas. We can lean on each other if we need to. Our students get the benefit of more brilliant minds teaching them. Plus my mind, but. <laughs> One thing we've been doing really well the last couple of years is addressing salary compression on a yearly basis so that when there is extra money that we don't have people who are feeling marginalized because of salary concerns. Potentially increase sabbatical pay to 100% for a semester. We have a lot of brilliant but burned out people who literally can't afford to take sabbatical. So if we gave them that opportunity even if it's just for a semester, I think we would look very different. And one thing that I've talked about is we all have concepts of how much we're working and we know it's too much, but we don't know how much. So if we could do a college-wide program, essentially just bookkeeping. What are our hours? What are we actually doing? Where's our work going? I think that could make a difference when we're talking about how much is too much. And yeah, those are the ideas we've kicked around, but you'll notice there is a lovely mic in the room. So I wanna spend probably, what time is it? Uh, about 10-ish minutes coming up with what you think we should be doing. So, and if you have any questions, feel free to ask them, but I kind of want to focus on what sort of solutions we might have. So what are the things you think would make Slick better for you? Aha, excellent. Emily. <laughs> Hi. Um, so as ePortfolio manager, I get to see a lot of stress for faculty <laughs> and for students. <laughs> And I think one of the biggest problems with our ePortfolio is that we sometimes present it as a best self presentation instead of a whole self presentation. 
And if in ePortfolio we could talk about our struggles and how we worked through them, or even that we're not there yet and we need support, that provides a space for sitting committees, faculty, fellow students to come together and say, hey, I struggle with this too, or here's an idea about how to overcome that. Um, so really shifting away from you always have to show your perfection and your best self to you get to be real and human, and we're all in this together. Absolutely. And can I depend on one of my friends who has a computer open or a pen and paper to write these brilliant ideas down? <laughs> Talia. Hey, thank you. Um, one of the things that we've been in conversation about is accessibility of our campus itself. So um, we have students that have mobility issues that are unable to even get to class to tell us that they're having mental health issues and just being able to kind of survey the campus. I know we have a lot of efforts towards that, but myself and Elisa Stone, shout out to Elisa, um, we've had a couple of students that simply can't make it to class, can't take elevators, can't fit through the door with their wheelchairs, and then it's just this perpetual issue. So I think really addressing the physical accessibility of the campus so that we can get to the mental, the mental aspect of it. And then, one more thing is helping, I, we are not social workers, right? Like you kind of touched on this, that we don't have the tools to be able to even open ourselves up. We need to be able to help ourselves. So maybe, I don't wanna say training because we're not social workers, we're educators. We need some kind of openness amongst ourselves to help us kind of shift students over or shift resources towards people who can, like you said, our people. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So even if we had like a campus-wide list of things that we need to address accommodation-wise, and we may very well have that already, but a way for faculty to be able to contribute to it easily when accessibility concerns come up. Ania? Hi, Professor Canavan. I love your entire um, brief here on mental health and um, in academia. As a student here at SLIC, one of the things I've noticed as a person who's been diagnosed with high-functioning anxiety is that um, there is that circle of influence. There's that circle that I, there's only things, certain things that I can control. And when you're taking 19 credits and about to graduate like I am, you have a lot of things thrown at you all at once. And one of the things I've noticed with a lot of my peers and colleagues is that we are often doing work inside of class. One of the things that really helped me get through high school in particular was having a work study period or having just a room that I could go to a quiet study area. I know that they do have those in the ABA building, but they're often taken up by like small groups already. So if we had a singular classroom that was like work study, go in here if you need to get something done, that would honestly be great. I was just talking with a my peer, um, Megan, actually, and she was saying how she needs to go into the student center because it's a lot quieter of a space there. And, you know, the library is just too loud or, you know, there's a lot of, you know, people. And so if we just had a designated classroom in the ABA building that's like work study for all the students, I think that would help us all out a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Could we please renew the Focus and Learn Day for 2023 to 2000 forever, please? <laughs> I need to know that there's at least one day a month, just one, that I don't get a meeting put on my calendar, that I don't have to show up somewhere last minute or Zoom from the, the school pickup line, <laughs> you know? Just, just one day, okay? Thank you. <laughs> I've joked a couple of times to my friends that when I have the time and energy, I'm going to make it my personal mission to force the city to get us a tracks as close as possible to our campus. So for those of you who have never had to use public transportation to get here, it from anywhere in this city, it takes at least two buses and one tracks for most of us. It gets to more complicated for any student who's even further out. Um, even from city center, you're looking at two buses just to get here. That's an hour, hour and a half. There's no reason we shouldn't have a tracks nearby, just like the U does. So if the institution would be willing to put some heft behind that, like I said, literally my personal mission. <laughs> so. 
and the ability to get to work easily and safely or get to school easily and safety that's a big thing for mental health too because there are so many stressors and the unknown and am i going to be late or is something going to break down and if we can ease some of that for some people that's you know we are a community college so that's one of the ways we can get our community to our college any other blue sky ideas and i know those of you who are online we're not going to be able to hear from you but i have an email address so please send them to me and we will get these forwarded on so <laughs> um increasing accessibility to neurodiverse people um i've tried to go to the disability center and the the walls that i face at school i face there as well and trying to access it it feels like it's not worth accessing that sort of help um i also think it would be cool if we could access like if we could accept neurodiversity as a type of culture because there are people there is a neurodiverse culture for different um uh for different identities and addressing that and kind of stepping away from this medical model of like these people have these problems and just kind of not that we can disregard that but accepting it more as like a, a holistic like a culture would be wonderful Yes, plenty of time. Thank you. Hi, my name's Elisa. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I have several ideas. They all involve money, so they may not be popular <laughs> at this juncture in our college. Um, I am a facilitator for the Center for Authentic Leadership and Mindfulness, and we do offer college-wide retreats to help faculty and staff connect their whole selves to their professional selves. I do find myself begging for money to train new facilitators, and although I'm pretty good at begging for money and getting yeses, <laughs> it would be nice if we, if we were able to fund that program, especially so that we could offer retreats to students. Along the same lines, um, I work heavily, or I work extensively with our Gender and Sexuality Student Resource Center, and similar issues come up with begging for money to fund our pride picnic where we have over 100 people come every year and it's amazing or figuring out how the college could support our participation in the pride parade and having enough money for that um, so thank you to those who help us and support us and i realize things are tight right now but we could use more money to back up endeavors for some of our most marginalized people so thank you And those are really ex important ways for people to find their community, to find their people, is through outreach like that, that says you're not by yourself. And that can lead to things like disclosure and recognizing other ways of being. Zach? Um, first of all, thank you. This is amazing. Um, mine has to do with uh, being a student in the honors program where you are one of my teachers um, and yourself and others included here. Um, I've been hooked up with faculty mentors where, you know, I'm said, I've been told, you know, be, this is your mentor. And that's opened the door for me to be able to say, like, can another person, can you be my mentor? And that has been instrumental in my success here at the school. Um, and at least for students, being able to, I didn't know how to do that or what that entailed. And so, having some sort of training or something that could help the students say, uh, reach out and say, can you be my mentor? Can you help me? Um, can really help remove a lot of that um, stress that we face. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that's a really scary thing, especially for first generation students. Reaching out to a professor is incredibly daunting. I always joke I'm the least scary PhD they'll ever see, but that's not <laughs> Darren's like I want to be the least scary PhD but um, but giving people a mechanism through which to do that can make a huge difference so if you think of anything else my email is acanavan at slick.edu but I do have a few extra minutes or we have I suppose so did anybody have any questions Thoughts, concerns, complaints. 
Well, like I said, I put all this information on my Digication page. It's not pretty, but then again, neither was my PowerPoint. Um, <laughs> but it's going to have this presentation. It's going to have an audio file. It's going to have the link to the video once it's archived. Um, all the references that I looked at, which is not nearly all the references that I talked about today, and links to the spectacular, incredibly edifying podcast, and most importantly, the Spotify playlist. But I want to thank everybody for coming, everyone for being here, everyone for talking me down off a cliff when I'm like, oh God, what did I sign up for? And I want it to be known that the person who teaches the bad words and taboo uh, terms class did not swear once. <laughs> time. <laughs> it's true, there is time. <laughs> so we are getting a track slide our way, and Daddy BRT is coming our way. That is awesome. So see, we've already fixed one problem, <laughs> just good, because waiting for Bernice to have the time to do something is, it's a long wait. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much.